This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest on this lovely Thursday evening. You are currently listening to Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We're broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, Auckland Park at the SABC. And we are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. And online it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samar Mangesi and driving the show with me is Amanda Machaka, Tracy Boomgod and Nedwa Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Leader of Nigeria's opposition vows to fight against the election outcome that saw the incumbent Muhammadu Buhari re-elected. Zimbabwean president says he is ready for a dialogue in search of a lasting solution to the challenges in the country. In economics, oil prices extend uh, losses after manufacturing output in China contracted for a third straight month in February. And lastly, in sport, South African Olympic 400-meter champion Wade van Niekerk is uh, setting his sights on competing at the World Athletics Championships in Doha later this year. But first, let's get a very quick update from Manda Machaka with regards to what is happening in the world of news. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Senegal President Merki Sall has won re-election with 58% of votes cast in last Sunday's poll, according to provisional results announced by the official counting body today. The majority win hands Sall a second term without a runoff vote. Opposition candidate Idrissa Sok came second with 21% of votes, while Osman Sonko placed third with 16%. Sal, whom rights groups have criticized for squeezing out rivals, was tipped to win after a modernizing first term that propelled Senegal's economic growth to more than 6%, one of the highest in Africa. Since Sunday's vote, opposition candidates have rejected reports of an outright victory for Sal, saying their tellies point to a second round of voting. Senegal has long been viewed as West Africa's most stable democracy, with peaceful transitions of power since it gained independence from France in 1960. More than 66% of 6.7 million registered voters took part in the election. Cameroon is denying a report by Doctors Without Borders that tens of thousands of Nigerian refugees who fled Boko Haram-related violence will be forced to return home. The report comes when at least 1,000 Nigerian refugees fleeing renewed clashes with Boko Haram terrorists have arrived in various towns in northern Cameroon. The United Nations Refugee Agency says the renewed tensions now require the mobilization of significant resources to be able to cope with the urgent needs of these vulnerable populations. Mogi Kinzaka reports. Aid agency Medicine Sans Frontier 
also called Doctors Without Borders, said Wednesday that Cameroonian and Nigerian authorities have ordered 40,000 refugees to return to northeastern Nigeria. The statement, reported by the Reuters news agency, said MSF had seen people packing up their belongings and headed toward the Nigerian city of Ran, which Islamist militant group Boko Haram attacked and burned to the ground in January. The Norwegian Refugee Council has called on all parties to the South Sudan conflict to allow humanitarian agencies to safely access people in desperate need of aid. The NRC says despite the peace agreement signed five months ago, conflict continues to impact the lives of hundreds of thousands of people in the country. Meanwhile, humanitarian aid for South Sudan remains critically underfunded. The NRC's regional advocacy advisor, Jeremy Taylor. So our reports um, that we've put out is coming off the back of, of an ITC report, which is a sort of a, a technical report done by UN and aid agencies. And, and what it's showing is that there's a starting number of people that are at risk of hunger. Um, we're noting about 6.4 million people, which is almost 60% of the population, could face acute food insecurity in the coming months. So what we're saying is that whilst we've seen some, some political progress, we're calling on the aid agencies and, and the donors to not take their eye off the ball and to recognize that there is still a huge humanitarian challenge in South Sudan. Tanzania has suspended a leading newspaper and its website for a week, accusing it of falsely reporting currency exchange rates. The action against the citizen newspaper follows growing complaints by opposition supporters and civil society groups, and rather say are moves to stifle dissent and create obstacles for journalists and rights activists. The citizen was accused of relaying false information in a recent article on the devaluation of a Tanzanian shilling. It reported the U.S. dollar selling at 2,415 Tanzanian shillings compared to 2,300 at the central bank's rate, according to surveys carried out in foreign exchange bureaus and banks. The Statistics Act of 2017 bans any publication of uh, statistical information contrary to the official, official figures with possible jail terms for those who do. And finally, an investigation by the UN's Independent Commission of Inquiry on last year's protests in Israel has found that there was no justification for the killing of nearly 200 Palestinian protesters on the Gaza Strip. The report concluded that Israeli soldiers fired live ammunition into the demonstrators, killing 189 people, including 35 children. The report said war crimes and crimes against humanity may have been also committed against civilians in the region. Chairperson of the Commission, Santiago Canton, says Israel has a case to answer to. These violations clearly warrant criminal investigation and prosecution, and we call on Israel to conduct meaningful investigations into these serious violations and to provide timely justice and reparations for those killed and injured. For Channel Africa News, I'm Amanda Machaka.
Well, today is Thursday, the 28th of February, and uh, you'll be glad to know that it is the end of the month. Um, I'm not sure if it was shorter for you than most months, but you can let us know by sending us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can uh, send us uh, a tweet on Twitter. And whilst you're there, be sure to follow us. That uh, Twitter handle is at channelafrica1. Friday the 23rd provided Nigerians with another opportunity to have a shot at performing the task of electing new leaders with uh, that of the president as most demanding after a one-week postponement from the original date of the 16th of February. With the exercise now history, the main challenger at the polls, Atiku Abubakar uh, of the People's Democratic Party, expresses dissatisfaction with the results and has pledged to take steps to reclaim his mandate through the courts. Collins Adohengbe reports that Nigeria's political weather is still hazy for the concluded polls. Muhammad Buhari of the All Progressive Congress, having satisfied the requirements of the law and scored the highest number of votes, is hereby declared winner and is returned elected. That was the icing of the cake for the ruling of Progressive Congress and its candidate at the just concluded first half of Nigeria's general elections. The announcement set the tone for a number of bandwagon reactions which may yet rock the boat of the political atmosphere of the world's most populous black nation. From all indications, the victory dance of the ruling party and its supporters may be yet a bed flown too early because if all goes well, the main opposition party has something up its sleeves that could put an end to that sound of victory which it totally disagrees with. The reason could be in the awaited details of this statement by Atiku Abubakar Buhari's main challenger at the polls. As you all know, democracy is a government of the people by the people. Only when people's choice prevails. That did not happen on Saturday, February 23, 2019. Before the INEC chairman went to town with the announcement of Buhari's victory, the People's Democratic Party had gone to the Election Resort Coalition Center to implore the electoral umpire not to go ahead with the declaration of more results. Osita Chidoka of the opposition PDP took INEC to task and asked for evidence of how things went with the voting program. While people in the South had issues voting, while card readers' complaints were all over the place, we seemed to have quiet and peaceful elections in places where the people had complained of severe cases of insecurity and of feelings of harassment by the military and bandits. Mr. Chairman, you should please project to us what the card reader has captured. The IVAC system is supposed to be automatic. It's supposed to read from the card readers all that has been captured and i'm aware that you have that information with you i'm also aware you have the information of the e-collation system in your guidelines it was made clear that no voting should take place where there are no card readers so mr chairman we just appeal to you that we would like you to project the accreditations as done by the card reader could that be the magic that will reverse the arm of the clock even when president buhari has been issued with a certificate of return and jubilation is continuing in the camp of the ruling party. Atiku Abubakar seems to be so sure that the election that has served Buhari a second four-year term in office is the worst in 30 years and he is not kidding. For my fellow Nigerians who feel angry, disillusioned and let down by the process, I appeal to you to remain calm and steadfast. Rome was not built in a day. We have the real figures. We have the real figures. We have the facts that were spoken so loudly on Saturday, February 23, 2019. As I have always said, this year is my three decades 
in Nigeria's struggle for democracy. But this is the worst election in those 30 years. Not even the military has conducted such a worst election. But going by the rhythm of the moment, Muhammad Buhari has come out to thank Nigerians and says the election were both free and fair. One thing he did not say, however, is whether it was also credible. I wish Mr. Chairman to congratulate all the presidential candidates and their teams on a hard-fought campaign. We may have had different views during the campaign, but the one thing most of us have in common is love of our country and our desire to improve conditions for Nigerians. From the comment of several observers, both local and foreign, it is obvious that the elections were both free and fair. And he went on to reveal the procedure that we see his administration through to delivering a new Nigeria that will endure and gladden the heart of future generations. I therefore want to assure that we will continue to engage all parties that have the best interests of Nigerians at heart. Our government will remain inclusive and our doors will remain open. That is the way to build the country of our dream. The hard work to deliver a better Nigeria continues, building on the foundation of peace, rule of law, and opportunities for all. We will roll up our sleeves afresh and give it our all. We have no other motive than to serve Nigeria with our hearts and minds and build a nation which we and generations to come can be proud of. That is still a dream to be seen because if the opposition match ways with action, that promise may just witness a shift of political paradigm. Article, it seems, is ready for a long battle. This is a long journey, but I'm confident of victory. All hope is not lost. Stay strong. By the grace of God, we shall triumph. And to the international investors and friends of Nigeria now pulling out of our country, I urge you to be patient and keep faith with the Nigerian people. Your quarrel is not with the Nigerian people. Your quarrel is with those who stole their mandate. Please do not punish people by divesting from Nigeria. That call makes the polity shaking and the courts will be the next battlegrounds where justice system will face the litmus test of being the last hope of the common man. And when two great politicians fight, the weather gives off a dusty cloud that will clear only after the court says, so have I spoken. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosato him before Channel Africa News. And now moving from uh, Lagos, Nigeria, all the way to Zimbabwe, where President Emerson Mnagagwa on Thursday reiterated that he is ready for a dialogue in search for a lasting solution to the challenges in the country. Nagagwa made the uh, remarks during the official opening of the Botswana-Zimbabwe Binational uh, Commission. The inaugural commission currently taking place in the Zimbabwean capital Harare is a platform that will enable the two countries to foster economic and political relations between the two countries. Simon Muchemwa reports. During the official opening of the inaugural Botswana-Zimbabwe Binational Commission Summit in Harare Thursday, President Emerson Mnangagwa said he is committed to peace and dialogue. According to Mnangagwa, no country would prosper in the absence of strong defense, peace and stability. The remarks came amid some political and economic crises which are threatening to tear Zimbabwe into the ruling elite and the opposition. Today, Zimbabwe is in a process of transformation and national renewal. 
We are making steady progress with regards to both economic and political reforms in Zimbabwe. The fiscal and monetary policies we have introduced are also showing our humble successes of where we want to go. My administration continues to push for greater national peace, harmony, unity, and cohesion. Fully aware that a nation at peace with itself is a nation that can achieve sustainable socioeconomic development. As such, a national dialogue platform has been established to allow a broader cross-section of the political players to express their views and input into the governance discourse of this country. That was President Mnangagwa addressing the summit in Harare where he pledged to support his Botswana counterpart, President Mokoetsi Masisi. President Masisi flew to Harare with a huge delegation that included ministers of defense, mining and agriculture with the possibility of signing trade deals. Mnangagwa added. I'm aware that Botswana will hold its general elections in the course of this year, a process that will deepen democracy in your country and region at large. We wish you, Your Excellency Brother, and the people of Botswana great success during your elections. Zimbabwe will support you. The binational summit comes at a time when Zimbabwe is said to be desperate for foreign direct investment FDI to boost its ailing economy. While the Zimbabwean state media reported that a one billion US dollar diamond begged credit facility to support the private sector had been agreed upon, the Botswana government disputed the claim. However, the Botswana leader emphasized the need for the two countries to promote the private sector. It is therefore important that as governments we engage the private sector to play its part in improving trade and investment between our two countries. We have a number of initiatives that have the potential to spur trade and investment between our two countries and the region as a whole. These include initiatives such as the Ponta Turbanini project, you refer to your excellency, between ourselves, between ourselves, meaning Zimbabwe and Botswana and Mozambique. This has a huge potential, not only to facilitate the movement of people and goods between Botswana and Zimbabwe, but also to give access to the Asia and Pacific markets for our products. I therefore look forward to our tripartite summit with Mozambique, the one President Yusi talked about, that you and I are to go to Mozambique to hold. We will discuss this project so as to find ways to expedite its conclusion. President Masisi pledged his support to efforts by the Mnangagwa administration to revamp the economy and did not mention anything about a credit facility. Let me therefore, Mr. President, reaffirm my personal commitment and that of my government to continue working with you and your government to further enhance the fruitful cooperation and friendship that so happily exists between our two countries. And never will we go back to the past where it was not so much so. Similarly, I wish to extend our solidarity and support to your efforts towards finding a lasting solution to the economic and political situation in your own country of Zimbabwe. 
The Zimbabwe-Botswana summit comes ahead of another scheduled visit by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa soon for the third session of the Zimbabwe-South Africa Binational Commission. President Mnangagwa said, This DNC session should therefore enable us to strengthen and deepen cooperation between our two countries. In addition, it is important to seize this opportunity to exchange views, formulate strategies, and adopt policies that adequately respond to our desire to leapfrog the growth of our respective economies and improve the quality of life of our people. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Abari, etise, mache, mingabu, baoni, kedu, mbote, ndemne, bonsoir. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It is all systems go for another installment of South Africa's popular undercover farming expo set to kick off next Wednesday in the capital of Pretoria. The expo has over the years become an important space for the farmers and stakeholders alike to mix and mingle as well as reflect on the state of the industry at large. This year, delegates will engage in a two-day conference which will be accompanied by an exhibition area which will showcase the fruits of this important sector. Here's organizer and founder of the expo, Suzanne Oerstazen. This was actually born um, out of a meeting that me and my father had um, some uh, 16-odd years ago. He started another publication called New Farmer Africa, and Undercover Farming Africa magazine was born out of that. We saw um, that there were information in the market that needed to be shared with farmers that farm with these types of, uh, of growing systems. And Undercover Farming magazine was born, and out of the magazine, we saw that there is a need in the market again for the farmers and the input providers and role players to come together. And then we started out hosting the Undercover Farming Expo and Conference. Now, let's talk about some of the strides that you've made through it. I mean, uh, quite a big business in itself, um, undercover, uh, undercover farming. Um, talk to us about, you know, um, the journey until here. When we started off, um, it was quite, you know, it was growing at a rapid pace. There were a lot of international investors. Uh, we had a lot of people from the Netherlands flying in. Um, they are really some of the trendsetters um, in, in this industry. Um, and from there on, this really grew to to systems that you you stand in in a, in a greenhouse system and you, you really you can't comprehend the type of technology that they are using these days in growing fresh produce. Um, it's absolutely amazing. And every week, every month, there's something new coming out. There's even now in Europe, um, there's robots picking peppers, um, and and they can tell you this it's ripe enough to go to market. And it's absolutely amazing being a part of this industry. And even in South Africa, um, we've got some of our big commercial farmers that's running systems um, that are so impressive, and they're doing really very well. 
and even our small, smaller farmers or small commercial farmers that's, that's getting into the, the system, if I might call it that, they're really, really doing well. It is a very hands-on type of farming. You know, we always joke and say on the open land, if your water pump broke or there's a problem, you've got a day to fix it. But in the greenhouse system, if that thing breaks, you've got now to fix it. There's no time to wait because it's a looked-after system yeah. that they install, but they reap the successes. And I was about to ask you that. I mean, you, you've highlighted just some of, of the good things that are happening in the industry and really how, how, how complex and specialised um, this kind of farming is. Let's take a look um, then, Suzanne, at some of the main things that um, the farmers in this regard um, are grappling with, you know, issues that they are struggling with that uh, can be improved upon. The corner, um, usually when we, when we see farmers and, and see uh, the systems that they use, um, I've got consultants flying in from the Netherlands and from Spain that assist our farmers uh, with their systems and, and uh, with problems that they have. The biggest problems that we, we had in South Africa was, was with the weather, obviously. Um, I mean, although this is a closed system, you regulate it and it's computerized and everything, the water quality, that, that's always a huge thing. Um, and also in the conference this year, we, we're looking at the reuse of runoff water. Um, because of water scarcity, water quality, it's really a big issue in South Africa. More on the netting side, on, on, on the tunnels and netting, there with, with the open systems, um, there you get a, a bit of nature coming in and you get more diseases and stuff that you need to look after. With the products that we have readily available in South Africa for the farmers, really from any crop, from your vegetables right through to your berries. If there's a problem um, in South Africa with the South African products that we have uh, available to farmers, you can sort that out. Now, when we talk about uh, farming in general, of course, um, this is a specialized kind of farming on itself. But, um, you know, participation of of young people is often uh, one that is lacking. Um, What trends have you seen in in, in this um, uh, sector of things? And how do you then inspire participation of a younger generation? I can tell you, um, by end last year, we are consultants flying in from the Netherlands and was actually in conjunction with Aqualink that um, they had a water, they called a water tour in South Africa. And part of this was horticulture. And I was, I was actually so impressed. We were invited to, um, to go to a project in Tembisa with a, with a farming containers, with a, with a hydroponic system, and it was all letters. And when I walked in, it was this young bunch of people and of youth, really. And I was standing there and I couldn't believe my eyes. They were so passionate. They were so successful. And what was great was the stuff that they really had a problem with and were struggling with. The consultants were able to help them. And they were so greedy to learn. And um, the feedback that we got from them was, wow, thank you, you know. They're doing so great. There's a passion for this industry um, in the youth. And I think that's connected to the, to the really high technology that comes with it. And especially on the greenhouses, I really see that the young people um, being passionate about this way of farming. And I'm really excited for the future of this industry, um, especially with the youth. And um, I can't let you go without asking this question. I mean, South Africa right now, um, uh, talk of the town around this issue, around the controversial um, talk of uh, land expropriation and whatnot. What sort of anxieties um, have you um, sort of heard in terms of engagements with farmers like? 
Zikona, there was a couple of um, conversations I sat in um, that this issue were raised. And at the end of the day, the farmers that I've spoken to said, well, we're in business. Farming is still business, and we will run this until they come to the farm and say, okay, we, we are taking this or whatever they're going to do with it. But until then, um, there's no, it's like there's no, I don't want to say there's no fear. Um, so there is a bit of a, if I can call it a hesitancy, um, they don't know what's, what's the, what the future holds with this whole land um, expropriation. But on the flip side of that, they're still in business. They still need to do business. They still want to grow and make their farms bigger and grow more successful. And that was Suzanne Oosthuizen, an organizer and founder of South Africa's Undercover Farming Expo. She was talking to Zikonamiso. The time is now 17.28 Central African time. You are currently listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultra Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. 1729, right here on Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. Now, before we go into the new embolization procedure to treat hemorrhoids, which are commonly known as piles, uh, which I'm very sure that a lot of people are very interested to hear about, we do have Dr. Gary Sudwitz on the line, and he's going to be talking to us about that in just a bit. But right now, it's going towards 17.30 Central African time. Let's get a very quick update from Amanda Machaka. Here are your news headlines. Thank you, Samora. Good evening. Senegal President Merki Sall has won re-election with 58% of votes cast in last Sunday's poll, according to provisional results announced by the official counting body. Cameroon is denying a report by Doctors Without Borders that tens of thousands of Nigerian refugees who fled Boko Haram-related violence will be forced to return home. And Tanzania has suspended a leading newspaper and its website for a week, accusing it of falsely reporting currency exchange rates. Those are news headlines. Right, so the new embolization procedure to treat hemorrhoids, commonly known as PILES, was recently performed for the first time at two hospitals in South Africa's Johannesburg and Cape Town cities. The medical condition impacts the lives of many South Africans, and according to Dr. Gary Sudwartz, one of the two interventional radiologists who successfully performed the rectal artery embolization procedures. The intervention has shown that most, uh, the most promising results internationally in the 
treatment of piles. He joins us on the line to discuss this further. Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, in a nutshell, could you please explain to us what uh, piles are and how do they occur? So, uh, hemorrhoids of piles are uh, big dilated or enlarged veins around the anus, um, and they commonly present with, you know, people have a funny feeling, there's like a mass or a little bulge next to their bum, often uh, bleeding, uh, very heavy rectal bleeding. so how do they occur? Well, they, we don't know the exact answer for that. There are a lot of medical causes, uh, so you can have quite serious diseases that result in piles, but most people don't have those uh, conditions. They just suffer from these dilated veins, um, and it causes quite a lot of anguish. And uh, what are the symptoms? I mean, you've mentioned that, uh, you know, the, it's the collection of um, you know blood and stuff like that but what uh, if if I have piles how do I know early so the the most likely thing you'll have is uh, bleeding so rectal bleeding often bright red blood um, and then you can have like a like a funny mass uh, down there uh, around your bum like a like a how do I explain like a blister or a, a, a bulge um, and eventually these things can actually um, uh, block their own blood supply and therefore uh, cause a lot of pain when we call thrombosed piles. Uh, sometimes they bulge out and people can push them back in and sometimes they can't uh, actually push them back in. Now, Doctor, is it um, more, is this more common in people that uh, engage in uh, anal sex or is this um, something that can be caught by anybody with the same amount no, of... No, it's definitely very common in, in, in everybody. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's, it's not particularly prevalent in, in homosexual sex. Uh, it's, it's really seen across all uh, populations, no racial predilection, just um, uh, in men and women, uh-huh. uh, often in middle age and a little bit later. Okay. And uh, well, tell us about the treatment of it. Is it possible for them to just go away by themselves? Yeah, so most people don't need any treatment. They, what you, the most common uh, treatment is, is a cream, like a local... Uh, anesthetic cream with some cortisone in it, okay. and there's often like things like preparation H or anisole or things like that. Uh, most people are quite comfortable with that. And then uh, occasionally they do need treatment, and the traditional treatment would be a band. So it's where a doctor puts a rubber band uh, over the palm, and it, it causes it to to break off because it loses its blood supply. Mm. Um, but eventually, uh, you know, some people need more. Um, actually corrective treatment or surgery whereby that uh, group of blood vessels actually removed, cut away from the from the uh, surface of the anus, uh, just deep inside and uh, that removes them. Now what we've uh, started to do is something much less invasive than that but has the same effect. Okay, can you tell us about the advantages of this um, new approach, uh, that the advantages that it has over the previous approach? Sure. So perhaps you can solve the, the journey. Um, this is uh, not my discovery. It was discovered actually by by Russian uh, doctors many years ago. They just uh, didn't show the world what they were doing because it was all the way in Russia. And it was picked up in France a few years ago by a guy called uh, Vidal, and he, he showed some very good results. So I was at a congress um, in Denmark. And, mm-hmm. and he was uh, showing them what he was doing in Marseille. I thought, gee, you know, I've got skills to get into those little arteries. Why don't we start digging in South Africa? 
there must be a massive need. And that's what we've discovered, that there's this large group of people suffering silently um, that don't want to go through uh, major surgery. And what it is, uh, just to answer your question, is the uh, treatment effectively involves blocking the arteries. So remember, arteries uh, carry blood away from the heart and yes. veins carry to the heart. So the treatment, the surgical treatment, sorts out the veins, which are the, those big dilated things. But actually, if you block the artery, uh, you can block the vein. So you, so you block the blood supply going into the vein. You don't have to cut away the vein. So it's mm. almost like draining the dam by blocking the river. Okay. You, you don't have to block the dam wall. You can actually just block the river. So, so what we do is we, we put little coils. They're, they're two and three millimeters big, really, really tiny little platinum coils. Mm-hmm. And they cause a clot in the artery that supplies the vein. Mm-hmm. All right. And uh, you've mentioned that the procedure has been successfully done in South Africa, both in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. But can you tell us where else in the world this procedure has been done successfully? So uh, I would fill uh, most major centers, but I've, I've been reading stuff mainly out of France mm-hmm. uh, recently. Uh, there was a lot of interest at the International Congress I was at. And, um, you know, technically what we do is we, we go from the wrist. If you can imagine, I can reach all the way down there from your wrist. So your, where your pulse is, uh, where your watch would be, mm-hmm. uh, right on your, you know, that's the radial artery, we gain access to the arterial system. So we pass a little wire and a catheter up your arm, uh, down your, your chest and into your abdomen. And then the branches to the rectum actually come off what we call the, the inferior mesenteric artery. The big artery comes off the water. Mm. So really we go nowhere near, uh, you know, your access point is just the end of your arm. Um, but can you imagine we can get, you know, so so deep into the, art, into the artery or into the body uh, from that point, which is much, much less invasive. So there's no, no pain. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the maths you asked about advantages. One of the big problems with hemorrhoidal surgery is excruciating pain and, and quite a long time off work. Mm. Um, mm. It's obviously quite embarrassing and demeaning and all of that. but. This, this procedure means that one can, uh, you know, have the same effect with absolutely zero pain. So you can go home the same day uh, because we're not causing great big clots in those, in those veins. Mm. And how do, you, how do you decide when a patient is eligible for the procedure? Or is it anybody that has piles? No, so you're absolutely right. So we need to, obviously, uh, you, you can't, we say, you kind of earn your procedure. It's not something we do on everyone who's in the past because the vast majority of people don't need uh, something something like this. Hmm. It's really for the people that are facing surgery. And there obviously, there, there's grades of, of, you know, some people are very insignificant or very small piles, and some people are very large, bulging out piles that they can't, can't push back. So this is really appropriate not for, for for the two extremes, one, you know, the, the very, very tiny ones or the very, very large ones. It's really for that middle group, the grade one and, uh, sorry, the grade two and grade three piles, because then ones that can be easily pushed back in uh, or not actually bulging out that that we would be targeting. So how do you select those is your question? Well, we work very closely with, with a team of doctors, those general kind of rectal doctors or general surgeons. They mm-hmm. need to find out that, you know, this isn't uh, rectal bleeding, uh, one of the causes, one of the most common causes is piles, but it could also be a cancer, it could also be an infection, it could be lots of or inflammation, it could be lots of things causing bleeding. So we wouldn't want to just go and, and do this for someone because they have bleeding. So we need to investigate that the real cause is piles, often involves a scope, 
um, and uh, that there isn't any underlying cause uh, for for those problems. But generally, if someone's you know fit and healthy, and it's grade two or three uh, hemorrhoids causing causing the symptoms, they'd be eligible. All right, uh, Dr. Sudwards, I just want to ask you one last question very quickly. Your practice is the first one on the African continent to be offering the new procedure. Are there any plans to expand it to um, any other parts of the continent to people who might be severely affected by uh, hemorrhoids? Yes, what we do is, uh, in my practice, although we're based in South Africa, we, we, we travel all over uh, South Africa, literally Johannesburg, Cape Town, and East London, but we have visiting doctors regularly, uh, either at the teaching hospital where we train uh, doctors at, at Kruderskia Hospital, or they come into our practice. So uh, last month I had visiting doctors from, from Ghana. Um, mm-hmm. So they will be going back to uh, their own practices and implementing the stuff they learned in our practice. So absolutely, uh, we, we, we do have quite a strong outreach program. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Gary, for chatting to us. Uh, and... Uh we, we, hope, we hope that a lot of people who need this procedure will be able to get it. Thank you for, for your opportunity. And could I just mention a website that people, if they need information? Sure. Sure. www.hemorrhoid, H-A-E-M-O-R-R-H-O-I-D, hemorrhoid.coza or the microsurgery.com. There should be a lot of information there if people are interested. So hemorrhoids.coza and... The microsurgery, all one word. dot mm-hmm. com. All right, thank you very much. Thank you for that. And that was Dr. Gary Sudworth, an interventional uh, radiologist in South Africa. The South Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. The South African University of KwaZulu-Natal's Centre for Creative Arts presents its 22nd annual uh, Time of the Writer Festival from the 13th until the 16th of March. Now, this allows the audiences as well as... so this allows the audiences, as well as fellow authors and literature, literature lovers, uh, a chance to encounter some of South Africa's most notable writers in some curated personal uh, encounters. More from Lillian Lutz, the acting director of the Centre for Creative Arts. This year's Time of the Writer Festival is a very exciting moment for us at the Center for Creative Arts here at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We have got a whole lot of directions that we're moving in that we feel are really exciting at this time in history. So we're dedicating this festival to really growing our own local industry and honoring the giants of our own literary endeavors. And what's also interesting is that many of the writers we've invited are quite young. Second is that 
We're very excited to have an artist-in-residency program at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, which has been funded by the Mellon Foundation. And this artist-in-residency program asks artists from different genres to come and spend a short period of time at the university to work within the university structures and share their creativity. So this is a big move for higher learning institutions to recognize artistic work. Now may you tell us about this year's theme? The theme of the festival is Centering the Indigenous. And what we've tried to do this year is to look at the idea of putting South Africa in the center again. And this notion of indigenous is not just indigenous language. It could be it's rethinking how we write, what language we write. But it's also the idea of putting South African stories back into the center of our lives. So we're going to tackle some of the hard discussions around decolonizing, around what it means to be a writer who writes in Isizulu or Spedi or whatever language, what it means to be a black writer in South Africa writing in English. We're going to look at those issues. We're going to also look at the issues of placing South African writers and African writers in the center of our discourses around literature. What are the changes you're hoping for in the South African space of literature? One of the difficult things that we face now is our bookstores are shutting down. If you want to go to a bookstore, you have to travel out to the malls and the outskirts. So this for us is very concerning, the idea of what happens when we lose books and access to books. What does that mean for literature? Does it affect authors and so forth if the public purchases books online? Yeah, obviously people are going to buy books online. They have to go through the usual service providers. And we as a team feel very strongly that those things are quite privileged, you know, you need a credit card, you need access to the internet. You know, those ways of finding books are quite difficult. The idea of having spaces to go and actually purchase books is a fast dwindling thing in our society. So obviously libraries are really important and also we're hoping at all of our events there will be books on sales. All right, so the time is now 17.45 Central African time right here on uh, Africa Digest with myself, Samora Mangesi. And uh, that was the acting director of the Center for Creative Arts, Liliane Lutz, on the line uh, talking to Nombu Yuselo Tango. I did say that it's time for, well, it's 17.45 Central African time. It's time for us to go and find out what's happening in the world of economics. And uh, Tracy, this is not an opportunity for you to promote uh, any... any, any Any businesses that you might have, I know that might be in tough economic times and people say we must have multiple streams of income. But um, yeah, let's find out what's happening in the world of money. Well, thank you, Samora. I won't use your platform to promote my business. Okay, it's fine. (laughs) Well, the Zimbabwean government has taken its campaign against illegal sanctions to the 40th session of the United Nations Human Rights Council underway in Geneva, Switzerland. Governments call for the removal of sanctions have also been supported by SADC, which has said they are preventing the country from accessing funding from multilateral financial institutions and capital markets to support its development agenda. Earlier, Botswana's president, Mohwet Simasisi, joined other Southern African countries in calling for an end to sanctions. 
He was speaking in Harare, where he's co-chairing the Binational Commission with Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa. Masisi says the lifting of sanctions will help Zimbabwe grow its economy. Zimbabwe's economic challenges are Botswana's economic challenges. In this regard, we wish to add our voice in calling for the unconditional removal of sanctions on Zimbabwe as Sadiq leaders. And we all stand by that pronouncement. There is no doubt that the sanctions on Zimbabwe are a major stumbling block with serious deleterious effect on the country's efforts towards full economic recovery. First Rand Namibia Group economist Daniel Kavishe says Fitch's recent downgrade of the country's ratings from stable to negative is unlikely to improve. Kavishe says the rating may only improve if drastic changes are made to create policy stability and a competitive investment environment. He added that as social deficits widen, the government will have to pronounce itself on key legislature related to land reform, equitable economic empowerment and public sector governance to reignite investor confidence. Liberian President George Weir's marketing Liberia's rich and diverse investment climate to Israel and is working around the clock to attract investors to the country. Speaking at the Israel-Liberia Forum for Economic Cooperation and Sustainable Development earlier this week, Weir said Liberia is a land of endless opportunities for investment in a diversity of sector, including agriculture, mining, tourism and hospitality, technology, manufacturing, banking and finance. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says he hopes the Northern Cape province will increase its contribution to the gross domestic product. The province only contributes 2% to the country's GDP, which is the lowest by any province in South Africa. Ramaphosa was delivering the keynote address at the opening of the over $1.5 billion investment Hamsbach Man near Achenis in the Northern Cape. This province remains underdeveloped. It contributes just 2% of South Africa's GDP and has an expanded unemployment rate of around 39%. Mining offers an opportunity to fundamentally change this. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that with this, we will see more and more projects opening up here to boost the economy of the Northern Cape and also increase employment levels. Meanwhile, the country's power utility Eskom says it may have to implement stage one load shedding until 10 o'clock this evening. In a statement, the power utility says the move is due to a shortage of generating capacity. It has warned that there is also a strong possibility of load shedding on Friday and at the weekend. This is because Eskom needs to replenish emergency diesel and water reserves. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.78 Nigeria Naira, 10.29 Botswana Pula at 99.35 Kenyan Shilling and at 11.96 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 3.73 Brazilian hail, 65.74 Russian ruble, 71.10 Indian rupee, 6.68 Chinese yuan, and a 13.87 South African rand. 
The U.S. dollar is also trading at 75 pence to the British pound and at 87 cents to the euro. In commodities, gold is trading at $1,318 and platinum at $863 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $66.20 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. All right, let's cross on over to the sports desk and find out what is happening with the world of sport. Thank you, Samara, from the sports desk. A very good evening. Starting with soccer news. Rafilo Jane, vice-captain of South Africa's national women's football team, hit a major milestone for her country on Wednesday. Jane played her 100th match on th- for the national team in their opening match against Finland in the Cyprus Women's Cup. The Canberra United midfielder made her Banyana Banyana debut in March 2012 at the Cyprus Women's Cup playing against Northern Ireland. She has already scored 12 goals for South Africa, the first coming against Botswana in an international friendly match in 2012. Jane says she never, in her wildest imagination, thought she would reach 100 caps for the country. Honestly, I always had dreams of reaching hundred caps ever since I came into the national team. Um you know having the likes of Bo Bonoko who've been in the game for a long time. You need to learn from them. You need to watch what they are doing and take the positives out of it because they know the ins the ins and out of the team. They've been here for a long time and it clearly shows that there's something that they are doing for them to be in this team so i've been learning so much from them and they've been guiding me in a good way and also when they kept on reaching hundreds it was a motivation for me also to say one day i also want to be in that part of category where i'm part of the hundred team Austin J.J. Ogosha, former captain of the Nigerian men's national football team, says he was never contacted over his alleged failure to pay income tax before a Lagos court issued a bench warrant for his arrest. He was taken to court by the Lagos State Ministry of Justice on a three-count charge bordering on failure to furnish a return of income this week. The former Bolton of England midfielder and member of Super Eagles squad to Tunisia 1994 and Atlanta 19. 1996 Olympics has hinted that the issue has been settled but will not give any further details. On to athletics news. South African Olympic 400-meter champion Wade van Niekerk has set his sights on competing at the World Athletics Championships in Doha in September later this year. Van Niekerk has not run competitively since he got injured while playing in a celebrity touch rugby match towards the end of 2017. Van Niekerk was addressing the media earlier today. I'll probably be there. Uh, I am I'm working way too hard to to not be there, so I think I'll be there. I think that uh, things are going my way. It's going quite good, and uh, my team is very patient with me. So I, I honestly believe I'll be there, and I'll be able to compete quite well. 
Fanikar Kasesi, he regrets, he regrets playing in the touch rugby match that saw him tear both his meniscus and anterior cruciate ligaments. I mean, you, you regret any, any injury that comes your way and uh, it's, it's definitely something that dwelled on me for months and it was something that I personally had to overcome uh, but my reality is what it is and I need to come back stronger. I can't be uh, carrying extra, extra baggage when I want to come back as strong as I envisioned and uh, if I want to achieve what I really believe I can achieve, I can't be taking regret all the way with me. Meanwhile, T-Systems South Africa announced today that they have renewed their sponsorship deal with Wade van Niekerk for another three years. And finally, in tennis news, Rafael Nadal was not a happy man after his loss to Nick Cagius at the Mexican Open, accusing the Australian of lacking respect for the public, the rival and towards himself. Cagius saved three match points en route to beating top seed Nadal 3-6-7-6-7-6 in three hours and two minutes in Acapulco on Wednesday. The Australian who suffered with illness and injury during the match was booed by the spectators and he also delivered an underarm serve at one point. After wrapping up the match, Kejos celebrated by falling to the floor and once he got up, he stuck his finger behind his ear, looking for a reaction from the crowd. The post-match handshake between the two players was also a little tense and Nadal didn't hold back in his criticism after the match. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Ito Chemani. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. Be sure to join us again from 7 p.m. for another hour of Africa Digest on this evening. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maume, and the rest of the team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can send us a WhatsApp to plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa One. Taking us to the top of the hour is Izita by Java featuring Bendalo. We'll see you later. <laughs> Senhor,
Mulandire moni nonsenu omvera kulikonse kumene mkutimva ntawi ino imene ifachi nyanja taza ndizo mwetakonza pano pa Channel Africa. Tikumveka pa 31 meter band mshot wave imene nso ndi 7 tooth.